On most Sundays in the green season, the Sundays after Pentecost, I always begin the sermon by saying a, a central theme that runs through the whole of this long season, about half the year, is uh, about Christian discipleship, its nature, its cost, and how to do it, what it means. So sometimes I think it's important to just remind it, what does the word disciple mean? It means learner. Uh, most of you have probably been acquainted with, certainly in the culture uh, in which we find ourselves now, there's a, an idea that's a good one, uh, and it's referred to as lifelong learning. That you and I uh, would be... Uh, it's a good suggestion that we be engaged in a process of learning at whatever place we find ourselves on our continuum in terms of chronological age. So that certainly as a Christian pastor is important because it's necessary for us to engage in a process of lifelong learning about the deep things of Christian faith and belief as they relate to our own personal circumstances and the organizations, people, and groups with which we come in contact. What does it mean to be somebody engaged in lifelong learning about the nature of Christian discipleship? We're going to read in Mark's Gospel something about the work of the apostles. And I thought I'd mention apostle... Uh, means in Greek, messenger. So in Latin, it got translated as missio, missionary. And in English, as we went through the various evolutions of English, it became emissary. Now, the thing that we sometimes do, particularly in churches that uh, are apostolic, is that we focus ourselves on the 12 apostles. And there were lots of apostles. There were lots of messengers. And so disciple and apostle uh, can occur simultaneously in one individual. In fact, it's a good plan if they do. So all of us are engaged in apostolic work in parish life, I would say that one of the top three things that within the internal workings of a parish church are really important apostolic work is the altar guild. The servers, the acolytes, that's all apostolic work. People who are engaged in outreach programs are engaged in apostolic work. So it's just important to remind ourselves of that, that apostolic work is important and that we uh, need to carry the message. It's important. So I want to preach on all three readings today. The, the reading from 2 Samuel, where we're continuing the story of King David, from the letter to the Ephesians, where we have a discussion about, once again, uh, Gentile and Jewish Christians, how they're getting along, 
how we understand what is necessary to be a Christian person in terms of how you think about this as you want to think about what then must I do? How do we understand our common life together? What does it mean? And finally, in Mark's Gospel, where we have a commercial message for going away and spending a little quiet time, among other things. How do we cope with all of the demands that are on each of us when we try to do that and can't, are unable? So today, King David has had a little respite from all these battles and this fighting. There's still some of it going on, but he's got his army, and he has a little downtime, so he's sitting in his house of cedar, thinking thoughts. And the prophet Nathan comes to see him, And David said, you know, I've been thinking about the fact that the Ark of the Covenant, this important object which has been carried around by the people of Israel in their their wanderings and in, in their battles and so forth, it's a big, elegantly made box that contains the Ten Commandments. And it's in a tent. And he said, I've been thinking about this. You know, here I'm sitting in a house of cedar and we have the Ark of the Covenant in a tent. Maybe the time has come when we need to build a house of cedar or something for the Ark to reside in, the presence of God. So Nathan listens to all this and he goes away. You know, I think prophets or people who fancy themselves prophets probably spend a certain amount of restless nights thinking thoughts. So Nathan overnight starts ruminating about all of this and he comes back the next day and he said, God has said to me that I need to tell you the Lord is saying that he does not want to be in a house of cedar, that he has done perfectly well Never has he gone to speak to any of the tribal leaders about the necessity of having a place, a permanent dwelling, and that he is present with his people everywhere they go. So I'm thinking thoughts. I have to write this sermon, and I'm thinking to myself, maybe this has something to say about where we find the presence of God. Our tendency, of course, is to engage in black and white thinking. Well, God is either located in a place or he's there. And in fact, it's both. If you read the story of the creation in the book of Genesis, there's more than one creation story. But if you... uh, I read this great book by a guy named John Walton who teaches at... uh, What's the the college in, uh, in Illinois? 
the great Wheaton College, so you know he's not a wild liberal, right? I mean, Billy Graham went to Wheaton College. Well, Wheaton College is a very good school, actually, in one, in, in one. He wrote this book on the creation stories. He teaches Old Testament at Wheaton College. And he says some things. I've said this before. We have to hold this stuff right in front of us all the time. The Bible was written for us. But the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written, in this case, to a people that are no longer there, in a language that is not English, and in a culture that is completely different. And so we need to learn a little something about that so we understand what, it, what this means. Right? I mean, you and I accept... The, the finding Episcopalians uh, believe that the scientific method uh, delivers up to us some things that are important. And one of them is, is that the world was not made in seven days. Seven 24-hour days. And the evolutionary processes of God have been at work since the jump. So what John Walton says is when you read these, you need to know that the language, the Hebrew that is used to describe this is the language of building a temple. So the description of the world, of the cosmos, is spoken of in such a way as to have the creation, the cosmos, like a temple. And God dwells in the temple with his people. Here. So when we come to church, we come to church on the Sabbath, on our Sabbath on Sunday, and we're with where God is resting, just as we're resting on the Sabbath day. In the presence of God. So, the big thing is, is that when we come here and we may feel better, and you know how I think about feeling better, we want to, but feeling better means you go out there and because you feel better, you're able to make a difference in big and small ways, not always or mostly in heroic terms. Being the best human being you can be, refreshed, fed with the food of life, Going out into the week ready for action with the presence of God in you with, with the Holy Eucharist, but also because you have now understood that God is not present just here, but in you. You are not God. But your true self is God. And coming to that understanding and realization is a lifelong process. And so God is saying to King David through the prophet Nathan, 
that I don't need to be somewhere now. Sometime I may be able to live in a house of cedar, but my job is to develop and to encourage continuity in Israel with this line. You told me a long time ago that you wanted a king. You got tired of the judges. You didn't want that. And you wanted a king. And then we got Saul, and that was a collapse. And now we have you. And I'm going to bring to bear all of my powers to see that you and your descendants are going to flourish And at the time of Jesus, if you were to ask a pious Jew, what do you believe will be part of the messianic age, which you're hoping for, it will be like the Halcyon days of King David and King Solomon. (coughs) Halcyon meaning the great days. That's what it will be like. And that's what we yearn for. And some will develop various theories about the fact that the Messiah will will be both a priestly Messiah and will be a kingly Messiah. So you see in the second Samuel, David last time precedes dancing the Ark of the Covenant and all the people follow him and then he feeds them. So Christian people who saw Christ in every word of the Old Testament looked at that and said, that relates to the Christian Eucharist. It won't do to say, yeah, but the writer didn't mean that. doesn't matter. That's how Christian people read that and understood it as part of their self-understanding and is part of the history of salvation. So what we take away from this is that God is both present and everywhere. It's sort of like quantum physics, you know. If you want to see an electron and locate it, you can do that, but you can't tell how it's moving. If you want to test how it's moving, you can do that, but you can't tell where it is. Amazing. Most of the time I go, huh? That little very short introduction by John Polkinghorne on quantum physics, an Anglican priest, by the way, and a world-renowned particle physicist. I read this little book on quantum physics, but when I got to the math part, oh, no. Not possible for David Brewer. I had to take Algebra 1 three times to pass out of it in high school. Not for me. It just was too much. You know, I just didn't have the, the desire. Right? The yearning. So now, here I am at my age, and I'm actually reading books on quantum physics. Don't go figure. So we go to Ephesians. When I was in seminary, what I was taught was that the majority opinion by New Testament scholars is that the epistle to the Ephesians is Deuteropauline, which means Paul didn't write it, right? 
It's in the corpus of those epistles that are not considered genuine. Of the 13 epistles attributed to Paul, about seven are considered authentic, and the other six are not. So I'm saying to you what my Old Testament professor used to tell us, you can believe that if you want to, right? So as I proceed with this sermon, I will refer to Paul in Ephesians, even though there may be good evidence for it not being Pauline, and I'll explain that. I've done this before, but one of the things we need to keep remembering is Paul dictated his letters to a secretary, to an amanuensis, who faithfully wrote this stuff down. And in some of the epistles, he will say at the end, see what large letters I am using to write to you in my own hand. So at the end, he writes in Greek as the conclusion of the letter, right? But most of the time, he, he, he uh, dictated his letters. So in the letters that are considered authentic, there is a, a, a writing style, a literary style that has emerged that we can get. So, and this has actually contemporary resonance. Often he'll begin a sentence with the Greek word un. Omicron, upsilon, nu. And it means, you know, da-da. You know, da-da. Nowadays, I, there are some people, particularly the younger generation, who say, open every sentence with, you know, right? You know, and you know, so you have some relationship to the ancient literature of the Christian world. But in Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, doesn't appear at all. So you might say, stylistically, either the scribe cleaned it up or it was written by somebody else. Now, why does that matter? It matters because this gives us, a, if they're not authentic, and that's, it's very ambiguous, I'm conservative, biblically, so I don't have as much trouble with the Pauline authorship of these things as others do. But the important thing is it teaches us something about the continuity of Paul's thinking and the fidelity by which those who followed him, some people refer to as the heirs of Paul, H-E-I-R-S, that their transmission of his thought was extremely authentic and true. The reason why it's also important is that it gives us an idea that the pastoral situation of the Christian church by the time of the writing of these letters was addressing issues that were not important to Paul. As important. Now this is an elaborate thing that maybe you've only got 10% of, but the reason why it's important is that today... Paul is speaking of something that is very important and that was touched on last week in Ephesians. And that is that we have two major groups within the Christian church, the churches that Paul founded in his missionary journey as an apostle. 
And he's included in the Christian tradition as one of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection only later, according to his own description. And he says in, in this, we have Jewish Christians who keep the law. Males must be circumcised, observance of the dietary laws and the keeping of the Sabbath. And there are Gentiles, which are most of the congregations that Paul founded because he believed himself to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And the Christians have been told, the Gentiles have been told by the Jewish Christians that to be in, you need to keep the law. So there's tension, as my grandmother used to say. Here, there's tension. And by the time of this, the writing of this letter, these tensions have subsided. And so the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians are getting along. And Paul said earlier and says here that the thing that unites us is being in Christ. And what he means by that is that your belief in Christ puts you in. Nothing that you do. If you want to keep the law, go ahead. We, don't, we, we have no evidence that maybe when Paul was just with Jews only that he continued to keep the law. But when he was with the Gentiles, he didn't do it. And in fact, in Galatians, he jumped Peter for having eaten with the Gentiles when he was by himself with Paul and when the Jerusalem gang showed up, he separated himself and would not eat with the Gentiles. So here's the issue that that raises. What is the relationship between law and gospel? And it affords me the opportunity to say very briefly that it is important that we understand that law is important, particularly with regard to what we understand to be our moral center. There is no moral consensus in this country at all. It does not exist. Everybody believes that they're the arbiter for what is true for them. Well, I'm here to tell you as a Christian pastor that I believe that there are some things that are true whether David Brewer believes them or not. And some ways of behaving and relating are true whether David Brewer believes them or not. I want to go further and to say that the Christian church in its various iterations has often focused on issues of what it means when I say that to be what we got to focus on. Behavioral questions, right? That may not have anything to do with what the moral center ought to be. And so the church is engaged continuously in a conversation about that. Paul provides us some lists about what it is that we should do uh, to be somebody who is a moral person. And Paul did not create those out of thin air. In fact, he got them from the Greeks. So that influence in the tradition has always been there, right? Aristotle, for example. 
So one of the things we need to understand is the importance of having a moral center. My teacher, Urban Holmes, who uh, became the dean of the seminary at the University of the South, said one time in class that as long as you haven't committed adultery, robbed anybody, killed anybody, cursed the Holy Spirit, or blasphemed against God, you're in the clear. Right? That's what it means to be moral. So what do you do when you wake up one day and you have noticed a uh, growing coarsening of your character? What do you do with that? What's the remedy? The remedy is a loving God who unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us and urges us to be more thoughtful about who we are and how we relate. So Jesus has had the apostles return from the missionary journey and they're giving him a report about the success or its lack uh, of their missionary journey. You know, if you read Mark's gospel, uh, Ernest Cockrell reminded me of this. In the original language, uh, Mark is written all in the present tense. So they're going, they're doing, they're doing, and there's a whole lot of energy and momentum in the gospel. There's urgency. So they've come to tell him about their missionary journey, and they're exhausted. And Jesus is exhausted because the crowds have been pressing in on them. So he says to the apostles and disciples, let's go go away to a deserted slash quiet place and decompress. So they get in the boat and they go over to Gennesaret. But people got wind of the fact that that's where they were going and they followed him, them on land. And when they got out of the boat, they were all there. And he turned around and he looked at them and he said, these are like sheep without a shepherd. The necessity for some direction. The necessity for manifesting the nature of the kingdom of God and what it might mean. And so they attend to the people. And Jesus heals many people. And the apostles help him. Now what they've cut out of this reading for lectionary purposes is the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to read that in John's Gospel next week. John's version. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the only stories, there's more than one, that appears in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we'll talk about what John means when he speaks of the feeding of the 5,000. So I'm reading this lesson and I'm thinking to myself, here we are in the middle of the Silicon Valley where we've got eight-year-old kids with a calendar on an iPhone. 
booked up, right? Filled with distraction, overbooked, absolutely in a situation where there doesn't seem any way to bring some serenity to this process at all. And to begin to see, and many people are, the need for some way to get some distance from that. Because a lot of the things that we're involved in that produce this, you know, hamster wheel are important. And they needed to be tended, they need to be tended to. My own suspicion, though, is we spend a lot of time uh, on things that may be less important because we have very high expectations. Somebody, I heard somebody say the other day that expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. Expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. In Buddha, the Buddha says one of the things that we have to do is to let go of our attachments. By the way, it isn't unique to him. In the Christian spiritual tradition, that's there too. But lots of people nowadays, you know, there are a lot of Budapalians around. We have to think about our attachments. The other thing, though, is that in this gospel, it is a commercial message for the need to get some distance, the need to have some rest, the need to be able to uh, be quiet, the need to be quiet and listen for the still small voice that you know is not your own. You know, there are two ways to meditate. Well, at least two, but I'll mention these. What I was taught, the first one is called discursive meditation. So that means you read something from the Bible or you read something from some spiritual writing or you read something from some non-biblical or spiritual source and you think about it. You have a conversation with it, a discourse. St. Ignatius Loyola used to say, you read something from the Gospels and you put yourself in the scene. Who are you here? Who do you identify with? How through doing that, after you finish thinking, do you then join Christ in his work? That's discursive meditation. And then there's non-discursive meditation. Or maybe centering prayer or contemplative meditation, right? Where you remove all thinking or attempt to and sit quietly and discover what Father Keating says is he used to think it was you and the other with a capital O. And as you move forward in, in doing this, you'll discover that you and the other with a capital O are one. One thing. And that means that you have now perfect alignment with the other. And you are empowered to 
be God's person in the world, both through thinking and both through not thinking. You know, getting rid of all of the things uh, that you need to. The distractions, you know. One time I said to an, an Anglican Benedictine monk at, in three, at three Rivers, Michigan, in the monastery, I said, you know, I'm, I, I'm having a terrible time saying my prayers. I'm so distracted in the chapel, I simply cannot focus at all. And Father Leo said, you know what you need to do is if you find yourself in one of those situations, sit there and say, all I have to offer you are my distractions. That's all I've got. And when you do that, you begin to have fewer, even if it's one last distraction. John Clinton Fowler, the rector of First parish, my first parish, he was the rector there, and he used to say, We Christians are inchers. We inch along. So maybe scaling down our expectations is part of how uh, we, we do that. So this, this week, think about the fact that uh, God is in you, God is all around. And God is present in our holy places. And so the presence has some influence on our serenity, or should. And if that is so, it means that you're going to be able to make a difference. And since you carry that presence with you, you're able to do the things that you're called to do that the biblical witness affirms, which is to be a reconciler, to be a healer, to be a person of peace in big and small ways. Most of us are going to do this in the ordinary and the commonplace. We're not going to do it in some heroic fashion. You know, this isn't a commercial message for issuing heroic work. Please understand that. But also understand that sometimes we tend to discount that progress. And I believe that in one sense, that's what the gospel is calling us to do. Amen.